This is Powers on Policing, the podcast that presents an inside look at the dedicated people who work in the criminal justice system. Your host is Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Hello, I'm Boston area broadcaster and podcaster Jordan Rich. Such an honor and a joy to sit with Bill Powers and discuss issues of policing and community, and also to welcome Bill's wonderful guests. Today, part one of a two-part interview with a Boston police leader, now educator, Paul Joyce, who's had a great impact on community policing, curbing youth violence, and much more. Bill, I'll let you take it from here. Hey, Jordan, I'm uh, really pleased with uh, our guest today, Dr. Paul Joyce, and I call him doctor, which is a little bit different because I used to call him detective and then I used to call him superintendent (laughs) um, because he's got such a wonderful background and career in both law enforcement and as an educator in uh, our, our college system. He brings more to the table than I can begin to tell you about. His degrees from uh, Clark University in sociology, then went on to get a criminal justice degree at Boston University uh, as a master's, and then a PhD in criminology and justice policy from Northeastern. So he's supported his his entire law enforcement career by bettering himself uh, along the way from both an academic point of view uh, and, and, a practi- and a practical point of view. Uh, he had a long history. Uh, he, he spent a few years as a Dedham police officer and, and transitioned over to the Boston police, where he had a 28-year career, starting out as a patrol officer and working, self, working himself up to the, the rank of superintendent, where he had a myriad of things that he oversaw to include the academy uh, and uh, parts of the detective unit. So to say that he, uh, he knows what he's talking about because he's lived it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do him justice. But I'll tell you from my point of view, I, I got to know Paul a little bit in the early 90s. We had some mutual friends uh, in law enforcement, and uh, they were the long-distance runners, and Paul was a long-distance runner. So I, I kind of knew a little bit about him before I met him. We were working on a case together in, it was the midnight, it was like 95 to 97. 98, he said to me, how was your weekend? I said, my weekend was great. You know, it was this and was that. How about you? He said, no, it was my birthday weekend. My wife and I went up went up north, and I was kind of a participant in a uh, like a triathlon, but I just had to do, you know, one of the legs. And I said, uh, how'd that go? He goes, well, he said, it was my 40th birthday, and I ran 40 miles. <laughs> and I, I said, with other guys? He said, no, no, I ran the 40 miles. And I went, I haven't run 40 miles in 40 days. Maybe 40 yeah. weeks. I couldn't wait to tell people about this guy. But it just shows the kind of endurance and the stick to itness that, that, that Paul has and has always had. And in a silent way, he became a, a mentor of mine um, because I watched him like a hawk because uh, I saw the leadership qualities that he had and how people followed. And as I say all the time, if you look over your shoulder and nobody's behind you, then you're not a leader. And Paul had, had more than a share of followers. So uh, with that as a, as a small introduction, welcome, Paul. Thank you very much for the kind words. I appreciate it. I'm out of breath just hearing about this guy. <laughs> How do I live up to that? You have. You, and am I right? It was 40 and 40, right? It was actually 40 years old, 50 miles. Oh, God. Now I'm even more tired. I don't even walk a golf course anymore. But anyway. <laughs> so, Paul, tell us a, a little bit about when I say your upbringing, you know, uh, what, what led you to law enforcement? What made you think that this was a profession you wanted to get into? Well, you know, I was, uh, I was probably 18 or 19 when I uh, decided that I wanted to be a police officer. And, um, and then I was just really laser focused on, on achieving that. I just feel incredibly fortunate. Um, it's uh, a challenging but an extremely rewarding career. I wouldn't have traded it for anything. You know, good days and bad days. But I've had such a wide range of experiences within the profession. 
and it really, I achieved everything that I wanted. So I just feel incredibly fortunate. I think we, we sort of parallel each other a little bit. My dad was in law enforcement, so I knew from my earliest age that this is what I wanted to do. But at the end of the career, which is still continuing to a point for both of us, but at the end of our actual practical career in law enforcement, I never expected to reach the level that I reached. Um, I never expected to have all of the opportunity that presented itself. If I look back to day one at the academy and what we learned and, and where, we, where we came out on the other end and how we were able to give back, it's a, it's a, a fascinating career. I, I mentioned this one probably once a day to people, but an old timer said to me way back when, kid, I love what I do. I just don't always love what I have to do. And mm-hmm. there wasn't a day that I didn't look forward to going to work, but that in your career and my career, we came up on an awful lot of stuff that uh, um, wasn't a pleasant situation, but worked our way through it. Yeah, it really was everything that I wanted. And looking back, uh, as much as I loved it, I don't miss it. I think there's life after, and I think you have to continue forward. And you've certainly done that. Can we talk a little bit about you you starting out in patrol and then how you saw your future and how you worked towards that future to detectives, um, the role that you played with the, uh, the Youth Violence Strike Force, and I want to get into that more in depth because that's really where I started to, to really pay attention to the work that you did as far as bringing people together. Community, what we used to call community policing when we didn't even know what it meant, into more of the community engagement and, and how you were able to, to get into that. And then from that, where your career went from now. So I started my career in uh, the Dedham Police Department, and I had a great experience there. But I really wanted to be a Boston police officer, and I was a, had the opportunity to uh, move to the Boston Police Department and spend roughly the next 28 years there. Um, I, um, I was in the uh, citywide anti-crime unit, the first gang unit in Boston during the late 1980s, when Boston experienced its most violent time. I was in the anti-gang violence unit in the early 90s. Uh, in 1992, I was promoted to sergeant. And I was uh, recruited to the Internal Affairs Division uh, based on the St. Clair Commission report, which was uh, which found that significant leadership and management problems in the BPD, uh, particularly in internal affairs. So um, I went in with roughly 16 other officers and um, had the opportunity to kind of rebuild that bureau. And it was a really important experience uh, in, in developing my leadership and understanding uh, policing, policing from the big picture, from the organizational view down, and the importance of uh, the department in policing itself uh, and uh, building trust with the community. And then in uh, 1993, I was commander of the Youth Violence Strike Force. Uh, late 90s, I was in the homicide unit where I worked on unsolved gang and drug homicides. And then I was promoted to superintendent in 2000. Uh, with some of my assignments being special operations, criminal investigations, and training and education. And as you mentioned, I got my Ph.D. in 2017 from Northeastern, and currently I'm the chair of the criminal justice and criminology department at Salve Regina University. Quite a career, and no, no ending in sight, right? No ending in sight. Yep. Now, we're young. No, we're uh, no I, as everybody says, it's only a number, and I, I can't imagine retiring. So we'll, we'll see how that goes for us. Paul, if we could talk a, a little bit when... In 1993, you went to the Youth Violence Strike Force. Could you talk about how that came about, how that that unit was formed, what was going on in the city at the time, and how you were able to bring together, not just you, but collectively you, were able to bring together a, a group of people, both from law enforcement and outside of law enforcement, to address the situation, particularly as it, as it applied to the gangs and the high homicide rate? 
1993, Boston was still experiencing pretty high levels of violence, uh, especially youth violence, gun violence, gang violence. And Bill Bratton was uh, commissioner at the time and uh, getting ready to, to go to New York, but um, he created um, the order um, uh, designating the uh, Youth Violence Strike Force, and it was designed as a multi-agency coordinated unit uh, to address youth, youth violence, and particularly gun violence. So with the uh, interagency component of it, it gave me an opportunity to outreach to my colleagues uh, who I had worked with previously in other agencies, including uh, the Massachusetts State Police, uh, Boston Housing Authority, the school police, Brookline Police, Department of Corrections, Probation, Parole, and Department of Youth Services uh, would be the start of the unit, and we would grow over time. But that gave us our start, and, um, you know, based on my previous previous experience, especially in the late 1990s when, when we saw the introduction of crack cocaine, the emergence of street gangs, and the easy access to firearms and uh, the violence that it led to, uh, Boston went through a really challenging time. I think we were slow in responding to the new events that were happening in our neighborhoods. And, uh, and we paid a price with mistakes that we made. I kind of learned from those and then my experiences in the gang unit and then tried to bring those into the unit. But I will say it was, it was a great opportunity to build this multi-agency unit. And uh, the individuals who came into that unit were uh, the best within their agencies. So we had a, we had a great start in, in forming the foundation. More incredible than anything, I think, is the way you were able to pull those people together from all the different agencies. Because as we all know, and we've all worked with different task forces where you get 80% of them are committed people that want to be there and 20% get sent there by the chief from an, from another department and you've yeah. got to work through all of those issues. And mm-hmm. you, you know, one of the things we've talked about, um, because it, it's never on anybody's uh, game plan, but people's individual egos and trying to get people to cooperate and work together as a team and not as, a, uh, as I like to say, lone, lone wolves that are out there on their own or have their own agenda that they bring to the table. How easy or difficult was that when you were putting this together? It was, um, I wanted to structure it in a way that we understood the type of policing that we wanted to do. You know, we were, we were uh, designed as a proactive police unit, but... At the same time, it was uh, equally important on the way that we treated people. And um, because we were still going through a time, a period of time where uh, police community relations were strained at best, and we were going to be out in the neighborhood. So I had discussions with everybody that came into the unit about the balance of being proactive, but also the balance of respect and fairness. And it wasn't a hard sell to this group. They were, they were, um, they were very good at what they did prior to coming to, to the unit. And then we established a plan of action going forward. First area that we looked at was warrants. So in Boston in 1993, there were roughly 26,000 outstanding warrants. And we didn't have a unit that uh, pursued wanted felons for violent crimes. And so we thought this would be a great way to start. And um, so we, we built this uh, um extremely uh, proficient warrant apprehension unit. And I will say that uh, members of the Mass State Police that came over, they um, they were experienced in it, and they uh, provided a lot of uh, leadership in that area for me. So they were, they were a great addition. And then we worked with the DA's office and probation to identify their most violent individuals that they wanted uh, uh, taken off the street. And then we pursued them. And we were... Uh, 
we had great success in our first year. I think uh, clearing maybe 1,500 or so warrants. Um, we then transitioned that warrant apprehension into working in the housing developments and doing quality of life sweeps of working with the residents and, and the legal authority at uh, Boston Housing Authority and under the guidance of uh, the Boston Housing Authority sergeant that was in the unit. In maybe uh, two years, we did roughly warrant sweeps in roughly six housing developments, made 300 arrests, the most outstanding operation where we went in and in three days arrested 135 people mm. for trespassing. But these, uh, and while it was a minor charge, the individuals we arrested were um, some of the most violent criminals that were uh, impacting the neighborhood. And what is really, what I was really proud of was uh, in all of those sweeps, we never received a citizen complaint. It can be done. So the warrant apprehension was, was a great first start. Let me uh, ask a question to both of you, as I often do. That was a great success story and borne out by the fact, Paul and Bill, that we don't have a problem like that today still. Has this kind of programming been borrowed by or looked at by other communities around the country? I mean, take Chicago, for instance, which has a horrific gang problem, or Los Angeles. What's happened to our idea here? Has it had any impact over in other cities? I think uh, once we get into the discussion of uh, the Boston Gun Project and you know, looking at firearm trafficking, certainly that has gone on a national level. But there were other aspects of the structure of the Utah Strike Force that were, were equally successful, uh, including the Summer of Opportunity Program, which did outreach to at-risk youth and provided them with job training and internships during the summer. And it was a partnership with Northeastern University and, and John Hancock. And I know that we'll probably talk about ceasefire in a few minutes, but uh, from my perspective, the Summer of Up may have been the most important program that we developed at the time because it went beyond arrest, and I think it showed that we had a real commitment to the youth in the neighborhoods, and we wanted to give them alternatives. And uh, so these ideas came from police officers, and um, and the Summer of Opportunity went for the next 20 years and made a great impact on, on the lives of many of the youth that came into the program. So I look back and I look at our crime-fighting strategies and and while I'm proud of the work that we accomplished, I think the Summer of Opportunity was a completely different message at a different time when it wasn't, uh, when you never would have connected a gang unit to doing that type of work. I think one of the things that uh, we've watched transition over the years, and, and I think your program, for me anyway, was when my eyes started to open wider. Traditionally, the police officers job was to be the warrior, to be the, the one that protected the community that went out and, you know, were effective law enforcement officers and took people in custody and put them in jail and everything's all, all good now. And we've learned through the years that, that that alone doesn't get it done. And, and this, this idea of transitioning from being the warrior to the guardian of the community, for me, it took its, took its root in this, uh, these projects that you, that you put together and worked on. Because you not only brought all law enforcement together to have them working as one. But then it was the community outreach um, that brought in business leaders, that brought in, I guess today you'd call them activists, and back then you'd call them community leaders, and brought in educators, and brought in the court system and the judges, and, and working collaboratively for the purpose of the, of the people, not just to, to lock people up and put them away, but, but to get them jobs, get them into programs, show them that people care. Uh, that's where I've seen the, the, greatest, the greatest good. 
And I, I've seen it only get better from there. And I, I will we'll get into it a little bit more. But the struggles that law enforcement has gone through over the last couple of years where people aren't seeing the good work that historically has been being done and just see them as, you know, people that just can't wait to unholster their weapon and, and take a life, which we know is ludicrous. But that's what leads to the news. So, um, yeah, I, I think that when you're looking at your strategies, Billy, um, you know, in the late 1980s, Really, it was only enforcement. Um, you know, the, the rates of violence were so high and so just continuous on a daily basis that it really, um, it, it, was, it wasn't a time of prevention or intervention programs. But I think we learned from, from our tough lessons and were able to expand that out to not only enforcement, but also intervention and prevention. And we became more comprehensive in the way we, we look at issues of crime. I think the other thing that... Uh, really made Boston very successful uh, during the 1990s was the leadership of Paul Evans as the commissioner and Mayor Menino uh, coming into office. And, you know, it allowed us to have a stability uh, within the city. And uh, from that stability came a vision for how we wanted to uh, change our policing methods uh, and build trust with the community. So there were there were lots of things that were going on you know, district captains were creating their own strategies. You had same cop, same neighborhood. So, you know, I, I feel like the youth violence strike force played a role in that, but it was a big, a much bigger strategy that um, that was led by uh, Paul Evans and Mayor Menino. One of the things that I think stands the test of time, if you will, we all know that people judge things on statistics. We all know that statistics can be messed with in different ways, right, to, to make you look better, to make you look worse, whatever. But the one statistic you can never mess around with is homicides because a homicide is a homicide and it isn't anything more or anything less than that. And correct me if I'm wrong because I'm just going to throw numbers, but at, at that time when you when you first put this, this group together, the homicide rate in Boston had crested over 100 a year for a couple of years, and now it's in the 60s. And I'm looking at similar-sized cities to Boston where the homicide rates are five, six times what they are in Boston, completely out of control. And yet Boston, sure, sick, any, anyone, you know, as, as we say, is one, one death is too many. But being able to restrict it down to the level that it's now at in Boston when everybody else is going, you know, you know, doubling their numbers every year. Uh, it's pretty amazing to me. So that, that for me, if I need to, to point to one statistic that, that shows me the, the, the brain power behind your experiment, it, well, not even an experiment. It was a, well, I guess it's an experiment because it was just starting out, but the work that you guys did and how that continues on until today. That's a great point. And in 1988, there were 95 homicides in the city, 1989, 100, and then 1990, 152, the most ever. So mm. That was really the most violent period of time. And um, like you said, from tough lessons learned, uh, a, change of, uh, a change of our policing approach, by I think it was 1999, there were 31 homicides in the city, the lowest ever. And I believe that we went two and a half years without a juvenile being, uh, being killed by a handgun. So, you know, um, when you look at change and adaptability and, you know, kind of looking in the mirror and saying, we need to do business differently, I think Boston's a great example of that, and um, the partnerships that were created really allowed the police department to be viewed with a sense of legitimacy by the community. You know, they bought into our strategies, they trusted us, but you needed to be out in the community, you needed to listen to the community, and you always had to keep in mind that there were a small percentage of individuals that affected the lives of many. 
and that's in any neighborhood, your most affluent or your most disadvantaged, and that 98% of the people do the right thing every day. That always had to be at the forefront of, of your uh, of your thinking and the way you approach things. And, and I really think that we achieved that in Boston, but through our partnerships, I, I really felt that there wasn't anything that we couldn't achieve, um, any problem that we couldn't take on and solve during that time. I know Bill is going to want to ask you about specifics in a moment, but as a resident of Boston, downtown resident, I can honestly say I've never felt safer, and I've felt this way since I moved downtown, and I've been to other cities as we all have. So the programs you and your colleagues put in place back then, I think, are still working. Well, I think Boston is a, I think uh, Boston Police Department is a great department. Its leadership now under Michael Cox is, is going to move forward. I think the changes we made led to uh, sustained changes over time. And uh, there's always challenges, but um, but I agree with your point that, that Boston compared to other cities is, we are a very safe city. I, I think one of the things that bothers me most is the changes that are taking place in society that we cannot control, a law enforcement cannot control. So in in your time, um, you made the arrest and the judges put them in jail. And they did their time and then they came out. And now we have people involved in shootings. Within a day, they're released on $1,000 cash bail to go out and reoffend, And they come back into the same community because it's the community that they live in know, and they reoffend. They don't go out to these other areas where where um, <clears throat> their mere entrance in town would, uh, would alert people. Um, and and I, it bothers me that the people are trying to do the right thing, the people in the community, the people in law enforcement, the good people. Our system now, as it, as it works, isn't allowing that to happen. They're, they're allowing offenders to reoffend over and over and over again. Um, that's kind of a political statement on my part, but it, it really – I think about what you were able to accomplish back then. We all, as, as a group, we, we accomplished. And trying to do those exact same things today just isn't going to be as, as easy as, as it should be. Certainly this is a very challenging time for policing and, uh, and calls for reform. Um, I think if you look at the, the funding, the police movement, it um, it peaked and then it's faded. I think it was probably driven on emotion versus more rational thought. But when you look at police organizations, 80% of their budget is people. So you, you talk about removing people in some ways. You look at progressive district attorneys and their agendas to hold police accountable and make change. You know, you're going to see also... Uh, 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 progressive district attorneys who started uh, and where they are today. Some have failed and been voted out of office. Some have continued to do some work. I think the problem was that is that police leaders weren't part of the discussion. And I would suggest that police leaders uh, have ideas on making changes in areas of criminal justice. Um, but this holding police accountable, you know, I get it. Uh, and police should be held to the highest of standards. But changing police culture is going to take place through police leaders at every level, from sergeant to lieutenant to captain to uh, commissioner or chief. My hope is that, that the change process that we go through will be led by police leaders who are incredibly competent. I think back to 50 years ago to when I went through the academy and, and years that you went through the academy, we were taught fundamentals of, of policing, but we weren't. We may have had a four-hour lecture on conducting an interview, the who, what, when, where, why, and how, but we weren't taught how to engage people how to establish rapport with people, how to have a conversation um, that uh, was, I'm going to say, mutually beneficial, but where we listened and they listened and we went from there. And, and we've seen that change, and I love teaching it now in the academy, and I certainly teach it a lot different than I ever did before 
because it's about engaging people in, in conversation. It's not about me telling them what I'm going to do. And and I'm going to guess that, that you had the same the same experiences of from where you were in the academy to where you are now. But the benefit of that in that now when you're teaching, you understand the importance of what we weren't taught and can now make that part of the curriculum. When I think back on my academy training in the Boston Police Department, it was a positive experience. I mean, it was really challenging, um, but I felt the training prepared me uh, for the profession. And in fact, with one of my instructors, uh, I adopted uh, I adopted his method of teaching uh, because it was so effective. And I had people in front of me that were credible. And so uh, my my early training was fine. The challenge within training is once you graduate from the academy, is going to be your first uh, couple of years in the field. And uh, this is where uh, I, I feel like the, the importance of field training officers, uh, mentors to young police officers become critical in withstanding kind of the negative component of, of uh, the culture and uh, knowing that what they were taught was the right way to police. And so I had I had great mentors as a young police officer, and I would, and I would look at the good things that police officers did out in the field, and I would look at uh, the bad things that they did out in the field, and then, you know, you develop your own style. But that first couple of years is going to be really critical to police officers after graduate. Uh, make sure that they're developing this really balanced uh, style of policing that, you know, is built on fairness and respect, but also uh, issues of safety, which, which our residents want. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I remember a couple of days before graduation, they brought in a station commander to talk to us about, you know, what goes on in the station and all that. So it was the first, like, enlightenment we had beyond the walls of the academy. And one of my classmates asked a question, and I don't remember wh- exactly what the question was, but the answer was, well, there's a lot of ways of looking at that. That's when you have to use common sense and discretion. As always, the room was silent. And then the uh, the person that asked the question said, sir, could you tell us when we're going to get issued that? Because uh, that hasn't been part of our, of our training. And it, and it really wasn't. You know, and like you just said, Paul, it's once you get out there and you have to figure out. I, I can look back at things that I did as a young trooper um, that were well within the law and perfectly okay. But had I thought through them and used a little bit more discretion, I probably would have been much more helpful to the person that I had taken into custody or written a ticket to than, than I was. And that comes with time. But then you have, as you said, that we all get good mentors or we become those mentors and we, we teach people the right way along the way. So. And this balance between you know, providing safety in, com- in the community and, and the importance of arresting those that disrupt the lives of many, you know, that's a critical part of our job. But some of my mentors, they could balance that. I mean, you know, if you had to walk into a tough situation, that's who I wanted next to me. But you could also see them in other scenarios where they were uh, showing compassion and empathy, which are really critical qualities to, to good police officers. So this balance can be, be achieved. It's not one or the other when we're looking at it. I was going to say the onus on both of you as instructors, as teachers, as mentors now, this year, 2023, 2024, has to be just so many folds bigger, greater, and more important because of all the socioeconomic and cultural changes and all the needs to respond to not just the crime on the streets, but the communities and the uh, social media campaigns and all that. Bill, why don't you reflect on that? And then we're certainly going to talk about that with Paul. Well, it is something that's new to us. Um, Well, not that new anymore, but the social media aspect and the way that we get portrayed. And, you know, 
that, that's where people learn, unfortunately, where they're getting a lot of the learning done is from social media and it's not the truth. You know, the amount of people walking around with signs and yelling and screaming and people, you know, looking at that as though it's responsible behavior and at the same time thinking that they're not being biased, that we're the biased ones. Um, we The biggest struggle right now is to have people sit down and talk. And that's what Paul and his peers were able to do back then to get the business leaders, to get people to understand, to get the community leaders, to get the religious leaders on board and, and, and let's bring this conversation back to where it belongs and not be a couple of words on, written on a sign or uh, some nasty post that everybody wants to you know, give two thumbs up to. For me, that's where the, the biggest struggle is right now is how do we accomplish that? How do, how do we become the leaders in the room? and, and um, get people to the table and get them to sit and have a conversation. You know, my feeling is that as police officers, we live on the line of controversy every day. We always have, mm-hmm. and we always will. But if you're doing work out in the community, if you're uh, seen in the community, if you're transparent, accessible, you can withstand that controversy when it comes, because it will come. And so if you don't, and you want to pick up the phone for support uh, when it happens, and you haven't been doing that work, nobody's picking up on the other end. So this is, in my mind, it's labor-intensive work, but it's extremely important work. You're working on uh, on your policing philosophy in the community every single day, and that you have strong partnerships, strong support networks. The conversation will continue with Paul Joyce in the next podcast. More on community policing, Paul Joyce's transition from a practitioner to an educator, and thoughts on improving policing and the lives of officers going forward. You've been listening to Powers on Policing with Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Please subscribe and download this podcast, available on all platforms, and we would greatly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Find out more at powersonpolicing.com.